You're listening to audio from Kingsway Christian Church. If you'd like to check out more resources or donate to this ministry, please visit kingswaychurch.org. Well, good morning, everybody. That was really good. It's so good to be here with you. I know it's spring break for a lot of people in our community, so we're really glad to take the time out of your day, out of your schedule to be here with us. If you're watching at home online now or down the road, welcome to Kingsway. We're really glad you're here. So if you're watching out of state or out of country, you may not know this, but here in Indiana, we have four seasons. We have almost winter, winter, still winter, and summer. And we are now officially in the still winter phase where yesterday is absolutely amazing, beautiful outside, followed by a 40 degree day, and who knows what's gonna happen next. But welcome to Indiana, welcome to Kingsway Christian Church. We're glad you're here with us today. So as the video and Kyle have already told you, we are wrapping up our series, talking about where do we wanna go over the next five years. This came from a process called the Unstuck Group. We brought them in over the last year and we just spent time with them evaluating where we are, setting a pace for where we wanna be and looking ahead. And uh, don't wanna look too far ahead because next week is gonna be Easter. It's gonna be celebrating the resurrection of Jesus Christ. It's gonna be awesome. You're gonna wanna be here to do that. But this is the last one, and this is key. And all of these are, are like, I don't know, a gear. You ever know, like, you spin a gear, it does nothing unless you put another gear in place. But if those gears don't link up, nothing happens. So all of these gears have to link up and go together in order for the good things to happen. So let me just recap with you quickly what we've covered very quickly over the last three weeks in case you're visiting with us today. Number one is this. It's our mission. And our mission is to become more like Jesus. We'll know we won at the end of the year, at the end of next year, at the end of every day if this is happening in our our lives. And my guess is this will continue on until the day that Jesus comes to take us home. We're just going to keep becoming more like him. So how do we do that? Well, number one, we're going to thrive spiritually, which means we're going to grow spiritually in our DNA. We're going to pursue God. We're going to read our Bibles more. We're going to pray more. We're going to put together resources to do that and guide us along that way. But that's who we're going to be as a people. Number two, we're going to multiply our impact, which means we're not just going to be about King's Way, our church. We're going to be about the kingdom. And I'll tell you a little bit more about that today as we continue on. But then the third one is grow leaders. Grow leaders is we will be known as a place where leaders are developed. I talked to you about the Global Leadership Summit coming here on August 5th and 6th. We're going to keep putting together resources and small groups in order to help grow up people both in their everyday lives and here at Kingsway, and that leads us to today. And that is this, to become more like Jesus, by the end of 2025, we will love our neighbors. Now, it's not new language. If you've been a Christian for any length of time, you've heard this before. There's a famous story in Luke chapter 10. Jesus is approached by a person who's an expert in the law. Now, when you hear expert in the law, you may think a Republican or a Democrat that you either voted for or voted against. That is not at all what this means. You might think of a lawyer, not exactly what this means. You might think of a judge of the Supreme Court, still not exactly what this means. An expert in the law is somebody who studied the Old Testament, specifically the Old Testament laws, like you would find in <clears throat> Deuteronomy and Leviticus. And those laws then were the guiding principles, the constitution, if you will, of the people of God, the Hebrew people, the Jewish people, the Israelites. There were over 300 laws of things you could do and couldn't do, and they held to a strict religious obedience of those laws. And not only that, but if you broke those laws, they had a system to redeem the breaking of those laws. And they had to go through all these ceremonial cleansings and sacrifices in order to deal with the fact that they are lawbreakers. And no, by the way, so are you and so am I. But 
You can imagine if there were over 300 laws you had to keep detail of, like don't work on the Sabbath. Well, what does it mean not to work? How much work is too much work? How much work is enough work? And can I walk a certain distance or can I not walk a certain distance? And what about just treating people with kindness or fairness? Well, what if somebody cheats me or I feel cheated by something? Or what if I loaned somebody money and they spent it all and they can't pay me back? How do I get back what they borrowed from me? And there's just all these rules on top of rules on top of rules that guided the people of God. So one of the guys who's an expert in that, he studied it, he comes to Jesus, and he says, okay, Jesus, now it says he's trying to test him. Of all of those laws, which one is the most important? And Jesus says, well, it's quite simple. Love the Lord your God, and if you know it, you can say it with me, with all of your heart, with all of your soul, with all of your mind, and with all of your strength. And then he says, and there's a second one, it's just like it, love your neighbor in the same way you love yourself. I turned on a podcast uh, yesterday, and I won't say the name of the podcast because I'm not trying to, to take anybody to task, but the podcast was an hour and a half long. I did it in double speed, so it was less than that, and uh, that's how I listen to everything. I listen to myself in double speed, so it's like 10 times speed, and um, in this podcast, they started off by saying, you know, the problem is you can't love somebody else until you know how to love yourself, and then they spent an hour and a half on the podcast talking about ways that you need to love yourself better. I'm here to tell you, trust me, you do a far better job of loving yourself than you realize. And this is the scriptures. We have secularized what Jesus meant when he said what he said. It is the assumption of Jesus, not that you don't have shame, because I know some of you have shame. I've had shame. Not that some of you aren't insecure. I know some of you are profoundly insecure. I am insecure. But that is not what Jesus means. And if we take what Jesus meant and we hijack it, then we never get to what he did mean and figure out what to do with it, how to become more like him in this world. And no offense to my brothers and sisters who are pastors on their podcast, they botched it. Jesus simply means whatever it is you do for you, that is the floor, not the ceiling for what you do for others. If you make sure you got air to breathe, make sure they got air to breathe. You make sure you got food in your belly, you make sure others got food in their belly. If you were to take care of yourself when you're hurt and somebody else is hurt, what should you do? Take care of them. It's actually really simple. It's not hard to figure out what Jesus meant. It's just really stinking hard to apply it. Because Jesus goes on and he tells a story. And the story goes like this. There's a man and he's walking along the road and some robbers come out, beat him up and take his stuff and they leave him on the road. He's in a bad condition, might even die. And along comes uh, a guy who's a priest, a religious leader. He should be the guy most tuned in to meeting this need. But when he sees the man, he walks to the other side of the road and just keeps walking. The next person to come along is a Levite. Now, Levites, you may not know this, is a tribe from Israel who was assigned to work in the temple to assist the priests. So essentially, he's right there alongside the priest and his importance, his knowledge, his understanding of the law. Jesus is talking right to the guy asking him the question. And he says, <clears throat> the Levite comes up, same thing, sees the guy in need, goes to the other side of the road, and just simply keeps walking. And then along comes a Samaritan. You ever heard of the story of the good Samaritan? I'll be watching the news stations. Pick your news. MSNBC, CNN, Fox News. I will watch a sports station. ESPN, Fox Sports 1, whatever it is. They'll often use the phrase, the good Samaritan. Or he did the deed of a good Samaritan. They'll say something like that. But what they don't realize often is that they're quoting Jesus. It's a story Jesus made up. It's not even a real story. It's a parable he made up to make a point. 
Now, when he made up the story, there was power in the story because the Samaritans and the Jews couldn't stand each other. They were opposed to each other. They didn't like each other. It's said in history that Jews would go all the way around Samaria to not have to deal with a Samaritan. And that's why Jesus picked a Samaritan when telling the story. So as this Samaritan walks up, he sees the need. And instead of doing what the priest did, instead of doing what the Levite did and cross to the other side of the road and ignore the man, he goes right up to him, binds up his wounds, cares for him, picks him up, puts him on his animal, and goes into town. When he gets there, he goes to an innkeeper and cares for him. Then he goes to the innkeeper, gives him two denarii, and says, look, I take care of this man for as long as it takes to get him back on his feet, and if I come through town and his expenses go beyond the amount of money I'm giving you, you tell me, and I'll pay you whatever you said it cost. End of illustration. So who acted like the neighbor? And the religious, or the man of the law, says, well, clearly the one who took care of the man in need. Jesus says, go and do likewise. Now, what's fascinating is in that very story, in Luke chapter 10, you can look this up for yourself, Jesus, it finds out, is being tested in a very unique way. It says that the teacher of the law, the religious teacher, He wanted to justify himself. So he asked Jesus, who is my neighbor? I don't know about you. I struggle with wanting to justify myself. Hi, my name is Matt Nickerson. I'm the lead pastor at Kingsway Christian Church, and I want to justify myself. And this is the context of the Good Samaritan. The whole reason Jesus tells this story is because he has a man sitting in front of him who wants off the hook, pressure off, burden off, like and Jesus says, no, if there's somebody near you and you see a need, here's one example. Paul in Romans chapter 13, verse eight, he says this, owe nothing to anyone. In other words, don't carry a lot of debt except for your obligation to love one another. If you love your neighbor, you will fulfill the requirements of God's law. Paul just took this entire story of Jesus and he put it into a new phrase. And that tells you how the early church processed this teaching from Jesus. Owe nothing to anyone except for the obligation to fulfill the requirement of love. What exactly does that mean? Well, for us as a church, what we've said is, okay, so loving our neighbors means we will extend the hope and love of Jesus to our community. We're gonna flesh that out each year with some specific initiatives and things we're gonna do. I'll tell you about one by the end of the service. But what I wanna do today is I wanna get to the heart of the why. And what does it mean? I want to get your brain starting to think about this a little bit, processing this information in your everyday lives, because I think most of us go through life oblivious, not even thinking about the fact that God is at work around us and the lives of real people. And I don't do this perfectly. I've been deeply convicted by one of the things we're going to do this year. And I've told you a little bit, if you're at the vision night or watch the vision night, I've been deeply convicted that I need to grow in this area, but that's why it needs to be a focus. Because if we don't focus on it, we'll just keep going about our lives. Let me tell you another story about Jesus, and we're going to look at what Jesus does in this specific story and see what wisdom there is for us. This comes from John chapter 5. If you have a Bible, I want to encourage you to open it. If you use a digital Bible, like the YouVersion app, highly recommend it. Go to John chapter 5. One thing I'm going to say today, you won't fully get unless you have a Bible open. If you don't know how to use a Bible, you don't have a Bible app, don't worry about it. Everything is going to be up here for you today. But in John chapter 5, starting in verse 1, we see a critical thing that I want you to grab onto for your life today. Ready? John 5, verse 1. Sometime later, Jesus went up to Jerusalem for one of the Jewish festivals. Which one? We don't know. Why is that important? 
Throughout the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, we're following the ministry of Jesus. All four of them basically focus on the three and a half year span of Jesus' ministry life. A couple of them, like Matthew and Luke, tell us a little bit about his birth years. John spends almost half his book focusing on the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus. But basically, they all focus on the three and a half year span of Jesus' ministry. And in that three and a half year span, we're told often about these intersections between his ministry and the Jewish festivals. And they're almost always extremely important. This is one of those situations where we don't know which festival, so apparently it's not that important. The reason it's relevant for you and I is, do you think if Jesus is headed to Jerusalem for one of the, I think, seven major Hebrew festivals, do you think he's focused on the festival and on worshiping God, or do you think he's focused on anything else? Okay, let me ask it differently. When it's Christmas season and somebody comes to you and says, hey, you want to come over for a party? Doesn't everything in your head go, yes, just not right now? Because you're thinking to yourself, I've got all these other things I have to do to get ready for the party. Well, it's no different. When you see festival, I'm just telling you, we don't know how to party here in America. We do not know. These are the people who would take a week to celebrate a wedding. Yeah, that's right. It could be a big deal. They know how to throw a party, and we don't know which party they're throwing. Some festival for God. And Jesus is on his way to Jerusalem to celebrate one of them. And it says, now there is in Jerusalem, near the Sheep Gate, a pool, which in Aramaic is called Bethesda, and which is surrounded by five covered colonnades. Okay, little stop real quick. This is what we call apologetics. If you don't know what apologetics is, Apologetics is when somebody makes an argument for why you should trust the faith. It's not to apologize, say, oh, I'm so sorry, you didn't understand. No, no, no. An apologetic, the, what, it, what it means is just to make an argument for the faith. Ooh, let me do a little bit of apologetics really quickly right here. This is important to you. If you're not sure if Jesus is real, if you're not sure you can trust God, if you're not sure about this faith, I understand. But the reason that John is putting this here is because in his day, everybody knew where that was located. In his day, he's giving you a geographical spot. It would be like saying, and, and this may be an extreme example, but it'd be like saying, there's this thing called Lady Liberty. It's this huge statue in New York City. And then he moves on. And everybody in America goes, yeah, I know what he's talking about. If I've never been there, I've at least seen pictures of it. I have an idea in my head of where this took place. This is a real thing. So if you're not sure about, you think like maybe Christians made all this stuff up because of power or whatever, let me just show it to you. Here is a picture of what this would have looked like. In fact, this is a modern day ruin of this in Jerusalem. And just in full honesty, we think this is the exact location of the specific pool that John is writing about in the story. The hard part sometimes is here you are 2,000 years later, and it's like, we think this is it. It could be this one, or it could be this one over here, but we think this is the one, and there's many reasons why that I'm not an expert in, don't have time to go into today. And you're like, I don't even know what to make of that. Like, how do I get out of this story, out of that picture, this story? Well, Here's an artist's rendering of what it might have looked like. Actually, can you do me a favor? Go back. I messed up. Go back. I'm sorry. Thank you. So you can kind of see, I don't know if you can make that thought, these stairs here, they kind of go down to this large pool area. Now go to the next picture. And an artist just said, what might this have looked like? So this is not real at this point. Uh, we don't actually have an aerial photograph, drone footage of Jesus and the disciples. It doesn't exist. So 
And the whole idea is, however those steps went down to, water pulled and gathered there. Whether it was an intentional aqueduct or whether it just, whatever, gathered there, there was water there. And the people would gather there for the purpose of healing. Now, let's go into the next, you have that in your head now. Let's go into the next verses and see what's happening. John chapter five, verse three. Here, a great number of disabled people used to lie. The blind, the blind, the lame, the paralyzed. Now, look in your Bible if you did decide to open it, and you will notice that it jumps from John chapter five, verse three, straight into John chapter five, verse five. If you got your Bible open, do you see that? Well, did we forget how to count? Or what happened here? This is the apologetics piece I wanna to get to you. So if you're ever sitting around, you're bored, and you turn on the cable, I know nobody has cable, but let's just say you're one of the few, and you turn on the history channel, and you watch it long enough, and they start talking about Bible things. They often say things like, did you know that you cannot trust your New Testament text? There's been all kinds of verses that have been added and subtracted over time. It's this big conspiracy. No, it's not. Hands down, the Bible is the most well-documented document in the history, history of the world. Go look it up. We have tens of thousands of complete and partial texts. In fact, we just literally found a few more texts. This was just put out in the news of some Old Testament scriptures. We have full and partial texts from within a very short span of time. And I know you may not know history, and I'm not an expert in this, but we have something like six or nine documents of some of Plato's writings and the earliest copies are within hundreds of years of Plato himself. And no one questions whether or not Plato wrote those words. We have tens of thousands of copies of the New Testament. And they're within a hundred years. Some within decades. In historical comparison, there is literally nothing like it in all of the world. One of the lies that's put out there to make you question whether you could trust your Bible or not is that Christians burned and got rid of any document that went against it over the years. And history records the exact opposite. Christian culture throughout time has actually copied. The Irish people literally probably saved civilizations by copying documents from all over the world when the Vikings and some others were coming in and burning things to the ground. They preserved many of the religions of the world's documents. It is the exact opposite of what you are often lied and told if you go look into it. Verse four is one of those examples. Verse four probably was a copyist who added a note in the margin somewhere along the way. Our earliest copies of the Greek text don't have verse four. Our later copies do. And here's what you'll find fascinating about your Bible. Nobody's hiding anything. It's right there. In fact, if you have your Bible open, you're able to locate John and you're able to look it up, you'll see a little asterisk, a little note at the bottom that says that for you because nobody's trying to pull the wool over your eyes and say, see, we've got the power and you don't. You could trust this book. That's the reason I wanted to share that with you. Now, let's move back into today's message. What basically chapter five, verse four tells you is, in that day, people would gather down there by the pool, and every once in a while, it was said that the waters would stir, and that it was an angel stirring the water, and that the first one to get into the water would get healed. And so this man would sit there and wait 
for the water to stir. Jesus shows up at the festival and he's not just busy with his own life, but he's paying attention. And it says, in John 5, 3, people used to lie there. Jesus recognized them. Here's what I want you to take away from this. To become more like Jesus, we must first see the need. And I don't know about you, and we'll talk more about this later in June, but if you're like me, you're so busy, you don't have time to see the need. You don't have time to sit with people in their lives. I was recently talking with a a friend who said, uh, there's this one neighbor in his community, and every time he just says, how are you, they start crying. And they know something's up. That is a really good sign, something's up. There's a need. They may not be laying next to a pool waiting for the water to stir to hope to get in to find healing, but something's up. Now, maybe like Jesus, you're busy. But will you take time to see the need? Look at verse five. We'll skip verse four. I told you about it. But verse five goes on. It says this. One was there who had been an invalid for 38 years. Again, verse four adds paralyzed. We don't really know what the issue was. It could have been uh, maybe had a severe injury along the way, broke a leg or something, it couldn't move anymore. But whatever it is, for 38 years, somehow this gentleman shows up and he waits for the water to stir so that he can get into the water so he can find healing. But then verse six says, when Jesus saw him lying there and learned that he had been in this condition for a long time, he asked him, do you want to get well? I've often found it fascinating in Jesus' stories, this one and even in uh, John 9 and some others, like how does Jesus pick out the person he's gonna heal? I mean, it says there are others there. Like is it, is it <laughs> duck, duck saved? Like <laughs> you, like I don't, I don't know how we know. I don't know. It doesn't tell us. But what we can deduce from reading the verses is Jesus is paying attention, Right? He's watching. He's learning. Jesus saw him lying there, and what's it say? He learned. How did he learn? So I read a commentary by one of the, just an extremely intelligent, one of the most intelligent scholars that I know, a guy named D.A. Carson. And D.A. Carson says, here's the thing. It's not super clear in the Greek, it's not super clear in the text, whether he learned from asking questions or whether he learned from God revealing. And I think part of the reason it doesn't say it is because the answer is it doesn't matter. Somehow, Jesus became aware of this guy's condition and his heart issue. The guy desperately wants to be healed. He shows up every day to sit at the pool and hope that the waters get stirred so he can get into it. Nowhere does the scripture say that this actually happened. Nowhere do the scriptures say that this was a real thing. It was, in the very least, a common belief in the day. And Jesus sees a man who's burdened by his situation. But don't forget that Jesus sees a man. He sees him. To become more like Jesus, we must care enough to learn And that's hard because that might mean giving up lunch or your plans. Remember, Jesus is at a festival. It might mean setting aside your agenda to join Jesus in whatever he's doing in the world. But if we're gonna become more like Christ, we're going to have to do it. It goes on in verse seven, John chapter five, verse seven. It says, sir, the invalid replied, I have no one to help me into the pool when the water is stirred. 
while I am trying to get in, someone else goes down ahead of me. And just stop there for a second. Whatever exactly is going on, we don't know, but get the situation. He is paralyzed in some way or another. He shows up. How does he get there? I don't know. Maybe he lives there. Maybe he literally lives right by the pool. Maybe he goes home every night. Somebody shows up when their job is done and carries him home, and they have nothing else to do with him. He's just in the way all the time. So they just put him there to get him out of the way, knowing they're going to come back, pick him up, and take him home. We don't really know. But this man has hope, but his only hope is in order for me to move on and have a regular life, a normal life, a life like I think I see and everybody else around me, somebody has to help me get down into there. And Jesus, instead of grabbing a Coke and sitting next to him and just saying, hey, I can help you down into there. Jesus says, I'll one up you. Look at the next verse. Then Jesus said to him, get up, pick up your mat and walk. And at once the man was cured. He picked up his mat and he walked. I don't have time to unpack miracles. That's not the point of this message. But I just want you to realize the instantaneous healing. 30, what was it, 38 years the man has had here. He can't move. You ever broke a bone? My son just broke his arm this past week. It's the first break among our boys. Uh, I looked at my wife and said, a year ago, if I told you one of our kids was gonna break his arm, which kid would you have picked? She said, that one. I said, Exactly. You ever broke a leg, a foot, an ankle? You put it in a cast, you can't move it. It's a couple months, the muscles shrink up. When they finally take the cast off, you look down and you're like, what did they do? <laughs> Been there, done that. And then you have to learn how to walk again. Not this man. See, when Jesus heals, he doesn't heal in part. Right. Jesus heals in whole. The man gets up and he jumps around literally grabs his mat and walks. Now, we're gonna talk about this a little more. I gotta keep moving for time's sake. But this is the problem for the religious leaders of Jesus' day because it's Sabbath. <laughs> not supposed to be working. This is work. And the problem with hyper-religious people sometimes, and so if you are one, take this as a, an encouragement, an admonishment, whatever you wanna call it. Sometimes hyper-religious people see the rule over the need. We have to be people who see the need. Obviously, God has a right and a wrong. There are moral rights and moral wrongs. There is good and there is evil. But we are called to do justly, love mercy, and walk humbly with our God. And that's what it means to be more like Jesus in this world. And Jesus is showing that to us here. Notice it says 9a. I did this John 5a, 8 through 9a, and then 9b. It just kind of broke weird, so I broke it up so you could see where the flow of the thought worked better. Here's 9b and the rest of 10. The day on which this took place was a Sabbath. And so the Jewish leader said to the man who had been healed, it is the Sabbath. The law forbids you to carry your mat. The religious leaders are so focused on the wrong things. And I just want to encourage you. If you're going to start loving your neighbor, if we're going to be a church that loves our neighbors, we're going to have to love people different than us. If you are a Democrat, you're going to have to love Republicans. If you're a Republican, you're gonna have to love Democrats and you're gonna have to stop judging the other one as if they are evil and going to hell and start realizing they are people in need of Jesus. If you're rich, you're gonna have to start loving the poor. If you're poor, you're gonna have to start loving the rich and stop judging that they're people who are going to hell. Instead, they are people who need Jesus. 
If your sin is X and their sin is Y, you've got to stop casting stones as if their sin is greater than your sin and realize we all need a savior. People like you don't, yeah, I guess I'll give Jesus the glory. People like you don't get to heaven. People who are forgiven get to heaven. The way we become right with God is we make peace with God through Jesus Christ, our Savior. So please be careful not to become judgmental. The world does not need more judgment, but it does need more holiness. And this is a tension that we have to respect, and there's not easy answers. It's messy. And it was messy for the first Christians. It was messy for Paul and Peter and Mary and John. It was messy. It's been messy for 2,000 years. It will never stop being messy. It will not stop. And the moment that you open up your heart, your family, your lives, and you start to reach out to people different from you, it's going to start to challenge you in ways that may make you uncomfortable, and that's okay. Paul says at one point, and whatever point you disagree with each other, church, Seek the Holy Spirit because I trust him to lead you. And the same is true today. I trust that God really is alive and Jesus really is in us and it's called the Holy Spirit and he wants to guide you. So seek him. And if you're wrong, listen and seek his face and trust he'll correct you in one way or another. But don't become judgmental. The world doesn't need more condemnation. It needs more Christ. Ooh, that'll preach. I should have put that on the screen. The world doesn't need more condemnation. It needs more Christ. Now, John, I want to move on and just tell you a couple things real quick. So, as the conversation unfolds, John chapter 5, verse 14, says, Later, Jesus found him at the temple and said to him, See, you are well again. Stop sinning or something worse may happen to you. Okay, this is powerful in light of everything I just said. Because what happens next is the guy walks away, the religious leaders start saying, well, why did you pick up your mat and walk? The guy's like, because I've walked for 38 years and he told me to. Like, what else am I supposed to do? They're like, that's working on the Sabbath. That's one of those laws. You're not allowed to do that. This is what's happening here. So Jesus kind of steps out of the picture, lets the whole hubbub blow over. Then he finds a man and he says, listen, stop worrying about what the religious elite tell you to do, but start doing what pleases God. There is nothing wrong when you're leading somebody to the Lord to point out, look, the reality is all of us are gonna stand before God one day. And we've got to get our lives right with Jesus. Jesus doesn't, when he's loving people, say, yeah, yeah, don't worry about it. Just keep doing what you're doing. But he starts with a healing. He starts with a learning. He starts with a relationship. And then he says, listen, now that you have some element of faith, stop doing evil things or something worse may yet happen. But it always begins with a relationship. It always begins with love. It always begins with grace. It always begins with mercy. All right, so here we are. We're to the phrase. What does it mean for us to love our neighbors? Here's what it means. Individually, we will expand our circles to invest in our neighbors' lives, serving and encouraging them in their journey. Together, we will commit to give ourselves away so that others can join in the pursuit of Jesus. We will impact each neighborhood in Hendricks County, starting with knowing our neighbors by name. We actually have an exercise we will lead you through in June. I failed the exercise, but I had a cheat sheet. Her name was Rachel. It's my wife. All right. Half, half of our outreach dollars will be used to best support the needs of our community. 
I'm gonna pause on this one just for literally a few seconds. We've had a lot of anxiety about this. Some of those who love our missionaries are like, are we gonna stop supporting our missionaries? No, the hope is if you go back, remember it works like a gear. If you go back and read all the other statements, our hope is to increase generosity, to reduce debt, thereby providing more dollars that we can invest into the needs of our community. That's the short version. You're like, well, how are you gonna do that? Well, we're building those plans now, but this, we had to set a goal. And then lastly, we will do this through funding and serving alongside our local partners to support families and bring healing and wholeness to our city. I don't know about you, but this one maybe more than any other thing that we've said excites me. Loving our neighbors. It just gets me excited. So much so partly because of this book that I read. There's this book, Joe Malley came to me in, in a sermon planning series that he said, hey, you ought to check out this book. And the book is called The Art of Neighboring. Here's what the book looks like. And so I uh, grabbed the book and I read the book and I was like, oh, this book is really convicting. It's not, if you go pick this up and you've been a Christian for 30 years, there's nothing in here you haven't read or heard before. It's not like there was anything new, but it was so profound and convicting. So we came and Brett and Ben led our staff through it and we led our elders through it and the elders of the staff been reading it, chewing on it, going, this is really good and this is really hard and uh, I'm not doing a very good job. I'm so busy at times leading the church, I don't have time to actually get to know the people who live in the houses right around mine. That's the kind of the point of this picture here. And so God has been convicting me and I've been trying to find ways to how do I be relentlessly intentional to actually be a neighbor. I can't love my neighbors the same way I love myself if I don't actually know my neighbors because I'm too busy doing something else besides being a neighbor. We're gonna go through this in the book of June, this, this book. And so if you wanna go ahead and read ahead, you can actually go to the website, theartofneighboring.com if you wanna check it out and you can learn more about this. But I've been recruiting churches. I don't know the exact number yet. Some churches are thinking about it, praying about it. But in some form or fashion, we have somewhere between five and seven churches who are gonna join us as we go through the series in June. And they're anywhere on the west side, in Canby and Clayton and Plainfield and Avon. I've had some people reach out and say, well, Matt, did you talk to this church? Did you talk to that church? Here's what I did. I just literally reached out to every pastor that I've met in town. So if I've had a lunch with them, if I've had a coffee with them, if at some point I've had a phone call with them, I just reached out there. So there's only maybe like 12 guys or so that I knew. So I know there's lots of churches on the west side of Indy. I don't know everybody on the west side of Indy. It's not that I'm picking and choosing who goes and like duck, duck, Kevin. Like I'm not saying like you're in, you're out. I just reached out to the guys I knew who started there. Some said, man, I would love to do this. If you do it again next year, let me know. We already got a series going that time. We can't do it. Others are like, yeah, that's awesome. Let's find a way to do it together. And I'm really excited to see what God does with it because we want to be not just about Kingsway, but also the kingdom. So as I close today, I wanna give you two questions that I want you to go home and really make you really uncomfortable. And I want you to talk about this at lunch. And I want you to make a coffee appointment with somebody later. And I want you to discuss these. First question, do I, this is you, Believe that God is at work in the lives of those around me. Yes. Pick that neighbor who's radically different. Pick that neighbor who, when you look at them, you think, Pooh, they've got no hope. <laughs> I have a neighbor that, because of their religious background, I think to myself, I don't know why I would waste my time because they're never going to believe. And as I prepared this message, God said, you need to repent. Okay, God. Here's the thing. Jesus is approached after he heals this man and the religious leaders want to take him to task. How dare you work on the Sabbath? And Jesus' response is this in John 5, 17. In his defense, Jesus said to them, my father is always at work to this very day. So I too am working. Do you see it? Do you believe that God is at work in the lives of the people around you? 
and the child or the neighbor or the coworker that you've been spatting with and you think there's no hope. Jesus believes that God is at work. And so he's working too. Second question to leave you and just annoy you a little bit because I love you and I do that to people I love. Am I willing to be used by God in this world? If life, let's say you get 80 years. Where are you in that 80? You don't have to actually say it out loud. If I only live 80 years, I'm past halfway. That's a humbling thought. I know some of you are like, ha, you have no idea. I get it. But it's a humbling thought for me. And if I only have a few decades left on this earth, do I believe that God desires to use my life beyond accumulating wealth, beyond renovating my house, beyond just playing with my kids, beyond watching more sports? Do I believe that God actually intends to do something with me in this world? Jesus goes on in verse 19 and he says this. Jesus gave them this answer. Very truly I tell you, the son can do nothing by himself. He can only do what he sees his father doing because whatever the father does, the son also does. So I realize if we wanna become more like Jesus, what Jesus is saying is, I just look at what God's up to. And when God is up to something, I join him. I don't really have a choice. It's what God's doing in the world. Jesus believes not only is God at work, but God is at work through him. If you wanna become more like Jesus and join us at Kingsway, same for you. What I wanna do is I wanna close in prayer, but before I do, real quick, if you're visiting with us today or maybe you're watching at home online, I don't know where this message is gonna land for you, but I wanna encourage you to connect with Jesus. You need a savior. You need a healing of some sort. You need a Lord. If you just put text, if you're watching online, just put text down there, we'll respond. Or you can actually text us at 317-565-4911. We say it all the time. Or you can go by our Connect Hub if you're here in person. But I wanna close by praying for all of us right now who've received Jesus as Lord, that God would stir in our hearts something that makes us really uncomfortable, that we would not be okay with status quo. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, Stir a passion in our hearts, God. Make it overflow. God, open our eyes. There's a world in need. And it doesn't need more fighting and it doesn't need more arguing and it doesn't need more condemnation. It needs a savior and his name is Jesus. But God, I repent. I repent. I repent of my busyness. I repent of my pride. I repent, God, of all the things that distract me from what's most important. I repent of my doubts. I repent of my fears. I repent, God, of the things that keep me from being where you've called me. Father, I pray for everybody in this room who joins me in that repentant prayer. God, I pray that you would begin to soften our hearts and open our eyes and make us aware that, Father, we could be like you in this world. We love you. We praise you. In Jesus' name, all God's people said.